Good morning, church. Hope that you guys are uh, doing well uh, today. And uh, just want to let you guys know that November is actually Adoption Awareness Month. And so adoption is a, uh, a topic that I'm incredibly uh, passionate about, not only because almost three years ago we adopted uh, my daughter Ellie um, and took her home when she was two days old, but also because I know uh, my own adoption into God's family and, uh, and just the, the length that God went to save me and uh, when I was a stranger and an enemy, excuse me, an enemy of of God, and so it's a beautiful concept, and uh, and it's a topic that I want to preach on today because it has um, a lot of implications for how we as Christians are to live as we understand what it means to be spiritually adopted into the family uh, of God. And so, with that, let me pray, and then we'll dive in today. God, we are truly, truly stunned by the ferocious love that you have for us. God, that even when we are wandering away from you, God, you still hold us fast. God, you pursue us with your love and your grace. And God, as we turn to your word now and we look at this concept of being adopted into your family, God, I pray that you would give us fresh eyes to look at this text in a new way. God, I pray that you would use uh, your word to just inflame a love for you that we did not have walking into this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would guide us uh, by your spirit. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope that you've had a, a good Thanksgiving uh, weekend. And uh, for those of you who were here last week, you know that I had a great Thanksgiving because I, I got my pie uh, this, this past weekend and so had a, a great time uh, with family and friends. We were over in Ohio with my wife's family and then my family. And uh, so a lot of busyness and a lot of travel. But um, I trust that you had a Thanksgiving, a good Thanksgiving uh, as well. And yet I also know uh, over the last uh, couple of years just how incredibly loaded that that question actually is, how was your Thanksgiving? And even if you ask, you know, how, was, how are the holidays going for you? That, that's an incredibly loaded question. And, uh, and I just want to encourage us as a congregation, as we interact with one another during the holidays, that that question, hey, how was Christmas or how was your Thanksgiving, um, is, is really a loaded question. See, for, for some of us and a lot of us, the holidays bring back good memories, that it's a joyful time, there's a lot of good traditions, we're with family, we're with friends, and for a lot of us, the holidays is actually a good thing. And yet for some of us, the holidays can be extremely difficult. The holidays for some of us can bring up painful memories, that it can remind us of just the intense loneliness that we feel, that we don't always have healthy family dynamics. So I just want to encourage us that as we're into the holiday season, just to be sensitive and to be aware of that reality that as we interact with each other and then even as we interact with people outside of our church, that that question, hey, how was Christmas or how was Thanksgiving, is just incredibly loaded. And so to have that sensitivity that perhaps God could use you to love on somebody in a unique way uh, during the holiday uh, season. But there's nothing like a holiday especially a holiday that's so family-centric to expose some of the issues within our own hearts. That even if you have a healthy family dynamic, that there's nothing like a good holiday that can reveal some of the stuff that's in our own hearts and in our own souls. And sometimes we get just so busy 
within the holiday season that we don't, we don't quite see or know some of those issues that are within our own hearts, or, or maybe because we're just so busy within the holiday season that we can't see those issues. But the holiday season just has a way of, of revealing some of those issues that we have that are deep within our hearts. And I say that for, for two reasons this morning. Number one, don't miss the incredible opportunity during the holiday season to work on your own soul. Don't get so caught up in the busyness of this season or, or get so caught up in kind of numbing your soul with holiday cheer that you don't take time to work on your own relationship with the Lord. This is just an, an amazing opportunity to kind of dial into the condition of your own soul by, by just slowing down, by reflecting and creating space and time for God to work. So, so take that time, take that opportunity during the holiday season to see what type of issues that the busyness of the season might expose within you. Now, the second reason why uh, I bring that up is because during the holiday season, if there's one issue that tends to, to come to light, it's the issue of wanting to belong. That especially during the holiday season when it's so family-centric, one of the issues, one of the things that, that really comes to the surface is this desire that each and every one of us has, and it's the desire to want to belong somewhere. It's the desire to want to be accepted, to want to be loved, that each and every one of us, we, we crave connectedness. We crave deep down in our souls to look at someone else in the eyes and for them to say, you belong here, that you're, you're part of us, that I love you and I accept you and I affirm you. I remember just a few days ago uh, over Thanksgiving, having this big uh, Thanksgiving dinner with my extended family, and we had uh, kind of this buffet setup uh, where you kind of get your own plate and you go through the line, and uh, I don't know about you, but I always go into those moments with a strategy, you know, because I'm trying to load up my plate with as much food as possible. So I start with, you know, corn and green beans on the bottom because those are kind of loose uh, items of food. And then I put on top of that the turkey because it kind of holds it together. And then on top of the turkey, I put mashed potatoes. And so I got kind of this three-layer strategy just to, you know, take advantage of, of that one single place. I don't know what your strategy is, but that's, that's mine. So that's free for you today. But, but after I'm like loading my plate up on Thursday and, and I go around the corner and I, and I see the table there, and I, I think to myself, like, like where, where do I sit like, is, is there a, a seat for me at the table? Like, do, do I really belong here? Like, it just kind of crossed my line. Like, where do I fit in within this family? Where do I belong? And that physical and, and even emotional desire for me on Thursday of wanting to belong even to my own family reveals kind of this spiritual longing to belong to a family, not a physical family, but to a spiritual family where God is our Father, that each and every one of us has this craving to want to belong, not just to a physical family, but to the spiritual family in which God is our Father. And this concept of adoption addresses that need. It addresses the need, the fundamental need of every heart and every soul, and it's the need to want to belong somewhere. It's the want to be accepted. It's want to be affirmed. See, adoption is this intensely relational concept that centers on God's love 
for us. It centers on God wanting a relationship with with each and every one of us, and he wants us to belong to his family. And this is only made possible because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross. And so this issue of wanting to belong that's met within this concept of adoption has immense implications for how we as believers are to live. And that's what I want to look at today as we look at Galatians chapter 4. I want to look at how Paul uses this concept of adoption and its implications for us as we belong to the family of God. So first, let me just give you some high-level context observations about Galatians before we dive into chapter 4. That Paul writes this letter to the Galatians to reassert a commitment to the gospel. And if you've ever read Galatians before, you know that Paul comes out of the gate in in chapter 1, verse 6, with a really kind of harsh tone, but appropriate tone, as he's rebuking the Galatians who are starting to move away from the gospel that's found in Jesus Christ, and they're moving towards a gospel of, of works, that the Galatians were starting to flirt with the idea that they could actually earn their salvation by their good deeds. And so Paul is writing to the Galatians to remind them of the precious gospel of Jesus Christ, that you are saved not by works, but by faith, and that that's always been the case. And so we get to chapter 4, and, and Paul wants to make this point even clearer. So he utilizes the metaphor of adoption. And he does that to show the foundation of our salvation is Jesus Christ and not our works. And so far, Paul has actually used different examples in the Old Testament, like Abraham, to show that it's always been by faith that we've been saved. It's never been by works. And so now in our passage this morning, Paul is laying down his closing point in his argument before moving to application in chapters 5 and 6. And so his closing point in chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, is using this metaphor of adoption. In fact, Paul centers his whole argument using this adoption metaphor by highlighting the fatherhood of God, that Paul describes God as father twice in our passage alone. In fact, I'd go as far as saying that Paul's description of God as father is the linchpin in his argument that we are saved not by our works, but we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And so as we move throughout our passage this morning, we'll see this idea of God as Father even clearer. But first, J.I. Pactor does describe the importance of the fatherhood of God in this way. He says that you sum up the whole of the New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy Father. That if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. That if this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. See, there's something that's really, really important about understanding the fatherhood of God and its impact on our salvation and its impact as us as followers of Jesus as we work out the implications of being adopted into God's family. 
And so Paul beautifully uses adoption to unpack this reality and drive his argument home. And so in our passage today, in these seven verses, there are three concepts that I want us to look at. I want to look at first the concept of slavery, and then the concept of redemption, and then thirdly, the, con- the concept of adoption. So slavery, redemption, and adoption. And we'll see how Paul interconnects these three concepts to bolster the beauty of Christ adopting us. So number one, let's look at slavery. Verses one uh, through three, Paul first identifies us as slaves. Let's read verses one through three together. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And so in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, I want to point out that Paul is using an illustration here in the first couple of verses uh, that's really, really important for us to understand the beauty of adoption, that he talks about an heir being no different than a slave. And what Paul means when he says that is when a father would die in Paul's day, his minor child would have to wait for the inheritance until he is of age. And so even though this child is, according to the law, a legal heir and a rightful owner of the whole inheritance, or as Paul put it, of everything, this minor child had to wait to truly exercise control over it. And so in Paul's words, this minor child is basically no different than a slave until he attains the rightful age determined by the father prior to the father's death. And so for the time being, this child is under guardians and managers who watch over the inheritance. And then in verse 3, Paul says, in the same way that when we were children, so before Christ, when we were children, we were also enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Now notice how Paul is using this metaphor to explain our condition before coming to Christ. That just as minor children, they're governed by rules and regulations and principles by those managers and guardians, so also we were governed by these regulations of the world before coming to faith in Christ. See, what Paul is doing is he's highlighting who we were before being adopted into God's family. That we weren't these, these neutral children, but we were actually slaves to the principles of this world that we were slaves to sin, that we were slaves to unrighteousness, we were slaves to the values of this world, that we were slaves to our our birth father, Satan himself, as we were living a life in unrighteousness. And so Paul is highlighting for us our condition before being adopted in Christ in order for us to better understand the beauty of being adopted in Christ. See, in order for us to understand the beauty of being adopted, we need to understand what we've been adopted from and what we've been freed from. See, when we were adopted into God's family, it wasn't that we were adopted away from a bad or a poor home into a good one. It's not that we were adopted from from just a struggling family into a good one, but we were actually people who had no home. 
and we were adopted into a perfect home, that we were spiritual orphans or spiritual slaves. Now we've been adopted into the king of kings, God's family, and our inheritance is the same as Jesus's inheritance. See, one of the things that we need to understand as we, as we grow in, in not allowing our hearts to become callous to the all of our salvation is to better understand what we have been saved from that we weren't just bad people that were turned into good people. We weren't just people who were immoral, who needed some morality into our lives. No, 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 we were, we were dead people. We were slaves who needed a resurrection and needed to be adopted into God's family. And so Paul is trying to highlight the fact that we were enslaved to the principles of this world to highlight the work of Jesus Christ. And so Paul highlights this reality of who we were before Christ, that we were slaves. And yet not only that, but number two here, Paul highlights this concept of redemption. That Paul doesn't just want us to understand our identity before Christ as slaves, but he also wants us to know how we were freed from being slaves. That Paul in verses 4 through 5 here shows us that becoming children of God means that we needed to be redeemed. Look with me at verses 4 and 5 to see this concept. And Paul says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, I don't want to overstate this, but these two verses here really represent the center of Paul's entire letter to the Galatians, that everything up to this point has been leading to these two verses, and everything after are a result of these two verses. And what Paul says here in verses 4 through 5 is, just at the right time, God sent his son Jesus to save us and to redeem us from slavery in order that we might receive adoption into his family. And when Paul says that when the fullness of time had come, what he's referring to is that time that was set by the father for that minor child to inherit all of the things that the father had left him. And so Paul is saying that that time had come when Jesus came and he lived a perfect sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, and raised to newness of life, that that time had come. And Jesus did that in order to adopt us, in order to save us, in order to purchase us back into his family. So Paul is actually highlighting one of the greatest reversals ever to take place, that we become adopted children into God's family and we cease being slaves, that we become what we never were and we cease to be what we always have been. And this is only because of the redemption of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to dial into this idea of redemption a little bit more. That, that word to redeem in verse 5 has a huge impact on this passage. Paul's use of redemption or buying something back, it draws in these two metaphors of slavery and adoption, which is incredibly powerful here. See, what Paul is doing is he's, he's drawing from the legal process of adoption that ancient Rome practiced. 
See, what would take place is that a father would release a slave from his authority and power by formally selling him in accordance with Roman law. And what would sometimes happen with a father over a household who would, who would sell one of his slaves off if, is, is if he had a good relationship with that slave, if he loved that slave, if, if that slave worked hard for him, what that father would do is he would actually buy back that slave. And that concept of buying back that slave is this word redemption, to purchase something that was once yours. But what Paul is doing here is he's connecting slavery and adoption by pointing out the fact that God has not only purchased us from slavery, but he has actually adopted us into his family. And that practice of, of a father who had, who had purchased a slave back into his household was, was, you know, happened from time to time. But something that rarely happened was when that father would actually adopt that slave into his family. Now, whenever that would happen, that made a huge statement about that relationship between that father and that slave who was taking that extra step to extend love and acceptance to that slave to adopt him into his family. And what Paul is saying is that is exactly what God the Father has done with us. That God has not only purchased our freedom, but God has adopted us into his family. So it's amazing to see how Paul is moving through these three concepts from slavery to redemption to adoption so fluidly because they're interconnected. And what he's doing is he's trying to elevate the love of God and the work of Jesus Christ to actually redeem us from a life of slavery. That in all of this, the central role and function of Jesus is absolutely fundamental. That all of this is possible through the work of Jesus Christ to redeem us and to purchase us as children of God. That if you have faith in Christ today, you're part of God's family, you have a new belonging that you no longer belong to sin. You are no longer a spiritual orphan or a spiritual slave, but you are part of God's family and you bear the name of Jesus Christ. That in fact, this term that Paul uses here at the end of verse 5 in talking about adoption, according to one commentary, is a legal term that refers to the transfer from one family to another. That in Paul's day, this legal arrangement gave an adopted son all of the rights of a natural son. And so what that means for you and I, if you are in Christ, is that you will receive everything that Jesus receives in the inheritance and in our blessings because of Jesus. And if you want to get a, a good list of those blessings, you can look at um, Ephesians 1 later on today. But this is, this is an unbelievable reality that Jesus would go as far as not only redeeming us and purchasing us, but that he would go as far as adopting us into his family, which gives us a new identity. I'll never forget the experience that uh, Lindsay and I had when we adopted Ellie, that Ellie was six months old, and according to Ohio State law, you had to wait six months before actually changing her last name. And so when she was six months old, we stood before this judge. And this judge had this remarkable speech ready for us. He, he was basically exhorting us. And what he said, 
I will never forget because it has just this huge impact on me, not only as a father, but as a Christian. And I don't know if this judge was a Christian or not, but, but he was preaching. And what he was saying is he was saying, Chris and Lindsay, this name change for Ellie to be a Beals not only means that she's now part of your family, but she is forever part of your family, and nothing will ever change that. That she's not only receiving a new last name, but she's receiving a new identity, that she's part of your family. And he went as, as far as saying, he's like, oh, God, I encourage you not even to refer to her as your adopted daughter because she is now your daughter as much as a biological child is. And just have these huge ramifications as I'm listening to this judge, understanding my own adoption into God's family, that when God looks at me, I'm not a second-rate child to Jesus, but I'm on the same level as Jesus, that I receive everything that Jesus receives, that as much as God the Father loves Jesus, God the Father loves me and accepts me because I have this new belonging. Look, this has huge ramifications in our relationship with God. That what this means is that because you belong to God's family through the redemption of Jesus, you have a new identity. You have a new worth, a new sense of belonging. That your old life does not define you anymore. That your old life as a spiritual orphan no longer defines you. That your past sin no longer defines you. What defines you now is that you are part of God's family and you bear the name of Jesus Christ. So maybe to make it a little bit more personal this morning, I mean, just fill in the blank in your own life that whatever you committed in the past, fill in the blank, no longer defines you. That if you've had a divorce in the past, look, that no longer defines you. That those lost battles with pornography in the past, it no longer defines you. That your lost battles with, with stress and with anxiety and with worry, that, that doesn't define you. But who you are, you are a child of the King of Kings, which means your worth is caught up in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. This is your new identity. This is your new belonging. And so what defines you now is being part of God's family, and it's all because of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. Well, not only are we redeemed, but we're also adopted. So number three, this third concept, this powerful, just powerful reality of who we are in Christ, Paul introduces here in verses 6 in seven, which is really the result of Jesus' redeeming work. He says this, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, Paul starts to transition from to applying the redeeming work of Christ to us and further unpacks how it has changed everything for us. Now, if you're like me, you're reading verse 6, and you wonder, like, what, what do we do with verse 6 here? Like, Paul just almost out of nowhere introduces the role of the Holy Spirit. So how do we make sense of the Spirit who was sent into our hearts to allow us to cry out, Abba, Father? 
Well, this idea of the Spirit's role in adoption is seen elsewhere in Paul's letters. Now, Romans 8, 15 through 16 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And so what Paul says in adoption, that we have been given the Spirit of God sent into our hearts in order to bear witness that we are part of God's family. And so the role of the Holy Spirit as a witness in our hearts as children of God is really, really important. And again, Paul draws on similarities from the ancient Roman practice of adoption and connects it to the spiritual reality of us being adopted into God's family. That in the ancient Roman world, adoption was a public act where the individual who was being adopted was carried out in the presence of witnesses. And they did this to ensure the legality of the adoption, which could be established beyond doubt by reference to one or more of the witnesses. And so this is really important because it highlights the role of the Holy Spirit for us. That those same witnesses back in, in Paul's day would be used if the person's adoption was disputed, which would happen often. That people would say, you don't belong to this family. That's not your inheritance. That's my inheritance. And so the role of a witness would be called forth and say, no, 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 I was there when this person was adopted. This person receives the inheritance that is due to them by their father. And so what Paul is doing is he's highlighting the role of the Holy Spirit who does the same thing for us. It's even interesting, more interesting, that when you look at Romans 8, that towards the end, when Paul starts to talk about accusations and charges against God's elect, he immediately goes to the fact that nothing can be brought against God's elect. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. He's highlighting the role of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is important because I don't know about you, but when, when I go through times of doubting or when I sense the, the enemy, Satan himself, accuse me of my past sin, the role of the Holy Spirit is incredibly significant because we have a, a birth father, Satan himself, who scriptures call him the accuser of the brethren, that when Satan comes to us and he reminds us of our past sin and he tries to convince us that we're not part of God's family and he instills doubts into our minds and questions and he accuses us, the role of the Holy Spirit is to bear witness to our spirit that we are part of God's family and that silences the accusations from our birth father, Satan himself. This is incredibly important to understand your assurance that you're part of God's family, that when you go through seasons of doubt, when you go through seasons of just being harassed by the accuser, that we can in turn respond with the fact of who we are in Christ and that the spirit of Christ bears witness in our hearts that we are part of God's family. So to put it in another way, that the Spirit of God strikes a chord with the human spirit of the adopted son or daughter, indicating to them that he has indeed come home. 
And so this reassurance is the fact that you belong to God's family. It's just important to know that the Spirit's work is to reiterate Christ's work. It's not to innovate Christ's work. That Paul highlights the fact that that the Holy Spirit always acts on the basis of what Christ has already done. That's why Paul grounds the work of the Holy Spirit in verse 5, which centers on Jesus' work on the cross. I don't know about you, but this really, really ministered to me as I was thinking about how to apply this in my own life and, and just somewhat the ambiguous role of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is always trying to bear witness to me that I am a son in God's family, which means that I should not interact with God my Father as a slave, but as a son. And so one way that the Spirit reassures us is by causing us to cry out to God as our Father, not as a slave, but as a son. And I think the reason why so many believers struggle with with having assurance that they're part of God's family is because they fall into the trap of interacting with God from the mindset of a slave instead of an accepted son or daughter of the king. In fact, I love how Sinclair Ferguson highlights this amazing work of the Holy Spirit within us. That he says, Although he may be broken and bruised, tossed about with fears and doubts, the child of God nevertheless in his knee cries out, Father, as instinctively as a child who has fallen and been hurt, calls out in a similar language, Daddy, help me. That assurance of sonship is not reserved for the highly sanctified Christian, but it is the birthright of even the weakest and most oppressed believer. And so when we, when we interact with God as a son or a daughter and we call him father, and we interact with him on the basis of Jesus that brings us to assurance that we belong to God's family compared to interacting with God as a slave. See, when we interact with God as a slave, we're always trying to work and earn God's love and his approval. And yet as a son or as a daughter, our approval and our acceptance is based solely on Jesus Christ. And so God not only assures us of our salvation in his word that we're adopted, but he also grants us this internal witness of our adoption. That the Holy Spirit guarantees to us in our hearts that we are God's children. That the Spirit almost whispers to our hearts that you belong to God. And so this is an amazing, I mean, I could just preach on and on about the implications of what this means for us practically, but I do want to answer the question, so what does this mean for us? So this is an amazing doctrine, the doctrine of our adoption in Christ, that we're saved, that we're accepted, that we're in this new family, but how does that impact the way that we live? How does that intersect with your life day in and day out? So I want to highlight just four implications because we've been adopted into God's family. That number one, God's children are identifiable. And what I mean by that is in a similar way that a child resembles their parents with the same DNA, that God's children has now been infused with God's DNA through the work of the Holy Spirit. So what that means is that the Holy Spirit controls us and compels us and leads us 
to living a life that marks us as children of God. What that means is that if you're in Christ today, you can't possibly hide the fact that you're part of God's family. And so that has huge implications for how you live your life, that other people should notice that you're a Christian, that it should be impossible for you to hide in your cubicle that you are a follower of Jesus. It should be impossible for you to hide the fact in your family that you follow Jesus and that you're part of God's family because you have the Spirit of Christ who's leading you now and not the law. And so is that true for you this morning? Do other people notice that there's something different about you? That if people looked at your social media posts, would they notice that, man, that's a child of the king. That's not someone enslaved to the world, but there's something remarkably different about this person. That would people say that about how you respond to people who are rude to you, that you respond with patience and humility and with understanding. That is is your life marked with the spirit of Christ who's within you, who's living in and through you. Because God's children are identifiable. Number two, God's children pursue other spiritual orphans. See, you demonstrate the reality that you've been adopted into God's family by the way that you pursue others that are lost. Because you remember who you used to be before you were adopted. That you know that you needed to be rescued. That before Christ, you were a spiritual orphan, that you were a spiritual slave, that you, you know what that's like to live a life enslaved to, sl- to sin and unrighteousness. And so that motivates you to pursuing those that are spiritual orphans. And so looking at your own pursuit in evangelism, like, is that true? Like, are you pursuing those that, that aren't saved, that haven't been adopted into God's family? Do you have that sense of urgency to pursue other spiritual orphans? Because those of us who have been truly adopted into God's family will pursue other spiritual orphans. Number three here is that God's children are unified. God's children are unified. Now, the Lord has just blessed our congregation with, with just kind of a sweet unity the, the first, you know, almost two years together. Now, we have had really minimal issues within this realm of unity. So I just praise the Lord for that, that the Lord is working within our congregation. But I want to encourage us for us to foster and to protect that unity as we continue to grow as a congregation, that for us to grow deeper in our relationships with one another and to not hang out on the surface in how we interact with each other. Because there's a danger that in the pursuit of avoiding disunity, what can happen is we pursue just a superficiality with one another. And and superficiality can mask itself as being unified when in reality, we're just interacting with each other on the surface and not with things that are, that are deep within our hearts. See, the deeper you go in your interactions with one another, the greater chance that there is for conflict. And conflict isn't a bad thing when, when conflict is handled in a godly and in a, in, 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 a, in a good way. See, unity, unity is not having um, no disagreements, but unity occurs 
when we are consistently practicing dying to our own preferences and exalting the preference of another. Unity is not just stuffing our disagreements, but unity occurs when we are practicing humility and patience and dying to our own agendas and dying to bitterness and dying to to being harsh and extending grace and patience with one another. So I just want to encourage us to continue to grow deeper in our relationships and not just to hang out on the surface, to to kind of flex our unity that the Lord has, has really given us in our congregation so that we can grow deeper with one another. And so looking at your own relationships, your own friendships within this congregation or people within your small group, go deeper with one another. Talk about things that that really matter to you. That unity, I think, is, is really being demonstrated when you have somebody, for example, who is really, really excited about the, the election results and you have this person who interacts with someone who is disheartened about the election results and is actually terrified about the election results. But when you get these two people who are interacting with, with each other, unity is being demonstrated when they're connecting not on their political positions, but on their identity in Christ, that they're part of the same family. And so what that means is that they might disagree politically, but because they're part of the family of God, that means that they're going to extend grace, they're going to extend patience, they're going to extend understanding, because they're connecting on a much deeper level than just the political position, but they're in Christ Jesus. And so we're, we're a young congregation. And so as we just continue to mature and as we have more and more conflict, that's not a bad thing. But let's handle conflict in a godly and in a good way because we're part of the same family of God. And then the last thing here, number four, is that God's children are content. That God's children are content. Now when you stop and you think about just how incredibly rich those of us who are in Christ actually are, that our inheritance is unbelievable, that we are incredibly blessed and rich because of Christ. So, so how should that future inheritance impact our contentment level here in the presence? Especially as we get into the Christmas season where the celebration of, of Jesus' birth tends to get hijacked by, by consumerism, that how can we as, as children of God show our contentment that Jesus is enough for us? That how should that impact what we purchase or what we think that we, that we actually need? That because we're in Christ, we, we have everything that we need. And so there should be a sense of contentment, not only in our possessions, but even in our relationships. And so as we close this morning, I just, just want to leave you with a challenge today to understand that your position in God's family has implications for almost every area of your life, that your adoption into God's family, that because you are richly blessed with this inheritance, has the power to reorient your heart and what you desire. And so as we, as we approach this holiday season, I just want to challenge you to live out your identity and your worth being in God's family and, and to be different this holiday season, that to pursue the things 
of God and to avoid making good things into ultimate this holiday season. So let's pray together. God, we do thank you and, and give you praise that you have redeemed us who were lost. God, you have redeemed us who were strangers and who were slaves to you. God, we give you praise for Jesus who has purchased us with his own blood. And God, I pray as we continue to think through the implications of us being in your family, God, would you give us wisdom? God, would you lead us by your spirit to work out how our adoption in your family impacts us as spouses and as parents? How our adoption in your family impacts us as as employees and as neighbors? God, how our adoption in you has an impact on how we view other spiritual orphans. And so, God, thank you for saving us. Thank you for the love that you bestow upon us. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to continue to work this out in our daily lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.